Welcome to All Things Eerie, a collection of spooky tales brought to you by the Nashville Public Library. Here we welcome the unwelcome, try to settle the unsettling, and play host to the undeparted, the undead, and shall we say, the unreasonable. As we enter the land of shadows and uncertainty, the twilight of your imagination, relax while we pull aside the curtain. Indeed, lift the veil of the secret and unknown. And don't look around too much. It's bad for the nerves. Pull your blanket tight around you and make way for this evening's selection. When we last met, Mary Boyne's husband had been missing for two weeks already and we re-enter our story this evening as a rush of searching and inquiry as to his whereabouts spreads loudly throughout the environs of Ling. And now, turn down the lights and join us for the conclusion of Afterward by Edith Wharton. Mary, while every external means of investigation was working at its highest pressure, had ransacked her husband's papers for any trace of antecedent complications, of entanglements or obligations unknown to her that might throw a faint ray into the darkness. But if any such had existed in the background of Boyne's life, they had disappeared as completely as the slip of paper on which the visitor had written his name. There remained no possible thread of guidance except, if it were indeed an exception, the letter which Boyne had apparently been in the act of writing when he received his mysterious summons. That letter, read and re-read by his wife, and submitted by her to the police, yielded little enough for conjecture to feed on. I have just heard of Elwell's death, and while I suppose there is now no farther risk of trouble, it might be safer. That was all. The risk of trouble was easily explained by the newspaper clipping which had apprised Mary of the suit brought against her husband by one of his associates in the Blue Star Enterprise. The only new information conveyed in the letter was the fact of its showing Boyne, when he wrote it, to be still apprehensive of the results of the suit, though he had assured his wife that it had been withdrawn, and though the letter itself declared that the plaintiff was dead, it took several weeks of exhaustive cabling to fix the identity of the Parvis to whom the fragmentary communication was addressed but even after these inquiries had shown him to be a Waukesha lawyer, no new facts concerning the Elwell suit were elicited. He appeared to have had no direct concern in it, but to have been conversant with the facts merely as an acquaintance and possible intermediary. And he declared himself unable to divine with what object Boyne intended to seek his assistance. This negative information, sole fruit of the first fortnight's feverish search, was not increased by a jot during the slow weeks that followed. Mary knew that the investigations were still being carried on, but she had a vague sense of their gradually slackening as the actual march of time seemed to slacken. It was as though the days, flying horror-struck from the shrouded image of the one inscrutable day, gained assurance as the distance lengthened, till at last they fell back into their normal gait. And so with the human imaginations at work on the dark event. No doubt it occupied them still, but week by week and hour by hour it grew less absorbing, took up less space, was slowly but inevitably crowded out of the foreground of consciousness by the new problems perpetually bubbling up from the vaporous cauldron of human experience. 
Even Mary Boyne's consciousness gradually felt the same lowering of velocity. It still swayed with the incessant oscillations of conjecture, but they were slower, more rhythmical in their beat. There were moments of overwhelming lassitude when, like the victim of some poison which leaves the brain clear but holds the body motionless, she saw herself domesticated with the horror, accepting its perpetual presence as one of the fixed conditions of life. These moments lengthened into hours and days, till she passed into a phase of stolid acquiescence. She watched the familiar routine of life with the incurious eye of a savage on whom the meaningless processes of civilization make but the faintest impression. She had come to regard herself as part of the routine, a spoke of the wheel revolving with its motion. She felt almost like the furniture of the room in which she sat, an insensate object to be dusted and pushed about with the chairs and tables. And this deepening apathy held her fast at Ling, in spite of the urgent entreaties of friends and the usual medical recommendation of change. Her friends supposed that her refusal to move was inspired by the belief that her husband would one day return to the spot from which he had vanished, and a beautiful legend grew up about the imaginary state of waiting. But in reality she had no such belief. The depths of anguish enclosing her were no longer lighted by flashes of hope. She was sure that Boyne would never come back, that he had gone out of her sight as completely as if death itself had waited that day on the threshold. She had even renounced, one by one, the various theories as to his disappearance which had been advanced by the press, the police, and her own agonized imagination. In sheer lassitude her mind turned from these alternatives of horror and sank back into the blank fact that he was gone. No, she would never know what had become of him. No one would ever know. But the house knew. The library in which she spent her long, lonely evenings knew. For it was here that the last scene had been enacted, here that the stranger had come and spoken the word which had caused Boyne to rise and follow him. The floor she trod had felt his tread, the books on the shelves had seen his face, and there were moments when the intense consciousness of the old dusky walls seemed about to break out into some audible revelation of their secret. But the revelation never came, and she knew it would never come. Ling was not one of the garrulous old houses that betrayed the secrets entrusted to them. Its very legend proved that it had always been the mute accomplice, the incorruptible custodian of the mysteries it had surprised. And Mary Boyne, sitting face to face with its portentous silence, felt the futility of seeking to break it by any human means. Part 5 I don't say it wasn't straight, yet don't say it was straight. It was business. Mary, at the words, lifted her head with a start and looked intently at the speaker. When, half an hour before, a card with Mr. Parvis on it had been brought up to her, she had been immediately aware that the name had been a part of her consciousness ever since she had read it at the head of Boyne's unfinished letter. In the library she had found awaiting her a small, neutral-tinted man with a bald head and gold eyeglasses, and it sent a tremor through her to know that this was the person to whom her husband's last known thought had been directed. Parvis, civilly but without vain preamble, in the manner of a man who has his watch in his hand, had set forth the object of his visit. 
He had run over to England on business, and finding himself in the neighborhood of Dorchester, had not wished to leave it without paying his respects to Mrs. Boyne. Without asking her, if the occasion offered, what she meant to do about Bob Elwell's family. The words touched the spring of some obscure dread in Mary's bosom. Did her visitor, after all, know what Boyne had meant by his unfinished phrase? She asked for an elucidation of his question, and noticed at once that he seemed surprised at her continued ignorance of the subject. Was it possible that she really knew as little as she said? I know nothing. You must tell me she faltered out, and her visitor thereupon proceeded to unfold his story. It threw, even to her confused perceptions and imperfectly initiated vision, a lurid glare on the whole hazy episode of the Blue Star Mine. Her husband had made his money in that brilliant speculation at the cost of getting ahead of someone less alert to seize the chance. The victim of his ingenuity was young Robert Erwell, who had put him on to the Blue Star scheme. Parvis, at Mary's first startled cry, had thrown her a sobering glance through his impartial glasses. Bob Elwell wasn't smart enough, that's all. If he had been, he might have turned round and served Boyne the same way. It's the kind of thing that happens every day in business. I guess it's what scientists call the survival of the fittest, said Mr. Parvis, evidently pleased with the aptness of his analogy. Mary felt a physical shrinking from the next question she tried to frame. It was as though the words on her lips had a taste that nauseated her. But then, you accuse my husband of doing something dishonorable. Mr. Parvis surveyed the question dispassionately. Oh, no, I don't. I don't even say it wasn't straight. He glanced up and down the long lines of books, as if one of them might have supplied him with the definition he sought. I don't say it wasn't straight, and yet I don't say it was straight. It was business. After all, no definition in his category could be more comprehensive than that. Mary sat staring at him with a look of terror. He seemed to her like the indifferent, implacable emissary of some dark, formless power. But Mr. Elwell's lawyers apparently did not take your view, since I suppose the suit was withdrawn by their advice. Oh, yes, they knew he hadn't a leg to stand on, technically. It was when they advised him to withdraw the suit that he got desperate. You see, he'd borrowed most of the money he lost in the Blue Star, and he was up a tree. That's why he shot himself when they told him he had no show. The horror was sweeping over Mary in great, deafening waves. He shot himself? He killed himself because of that? Well, he didn't kill himself exactly. He dragged on two months before he died, Parvis emitted the statement as unemotionally as a gramophone grinding out its record. You mean that he tried to kill himself and failed? And tried again? Oh, he didn't have to try again, said Parvis grimly. They sat opposite each other in silence, he swinging his eyeglass thoughtfully about his finger, she motionless, her arms stretched along her knees in an attitude of rigid tension. But if you knew all this, she began at length, hardly able to force her voice above a whisper, how is it that when I wrote you at the time of my husband's disappearance, you said you didn't understand his letter? Parvis received this without perceptible discomfiture. Why, I didn't understand it, strictly speaking, and it wasn't the time to talk about it if I had. The Elwell business was settled when the suit was withdrawn. 
Nothing I could have told you would have helped you to find your husband. Mary continued to scrutinize him. Then why are you telling me this now? Still Parvis did not hesitate. Well, to begin with, I supposed you knew more than you appear to. I mean, about the circumstances of Elwell's death. And then people are talking of it now. The whole matter's been raked up again, and I thought, if you didn't know, you ought to. She remained silent, and he continued. You see, it's only come out lately what a bad state Elwell's affairs were in. His wife's a proud woman, and she fought on as long as she could, going out to work and taking sewing at home. But when she got too sick, something with the heart, I believe. But she had his bedridden mother to look after and the children, and she broke down under it and finally had to ask for help. That attracted attention to the case, and the papers took it up, and a subscription was started. Everybody out there liked Bob Elwell, and most of the prominent names in the place are down on the list, and people began to wonder why. Parvis broke off to fumble in an inner pocket. Here, he continued, here's an account of the whole thing from the Sentinel. A little sensational, of course, but I guess you'd better look it over. He held out a newspaper to Mary, who unfolded it slowly, remembering as she did so the evening when, in that same room, the perusal of a clipping from the Sentinel had first shaken the depths of her security. As she opened the paper, her eyes, shrinking from the glaring headlines, widow of Boyne's victim forced to appeal for aid, ran down the column of text to two portraits inserted in it. The first was her husband's, taken from a photograph made the year they had come to England. It was the picture of him that she liked best, the one that stood on the writing table upstairs in her bedroom. As the eyes in the photograph met hers, she felt it would be impossible to read what was said of him, and closed her lids with the sharpness of the pain. I thought if you felt disposed to put your name down, she heard Parvis continue. She opened her eyes with an effort, and they fell on the other portrait. It was that of a youngish man, slightly built, in rough clothes, with features somewhat blurred by the shadow of a projecting hat brim. Where had she seen that outline before? She stared at it confusedly, her heart hammering in her throat and ears. Then she gave a cry. This is the man, the man who came for my husband. She heard Parvis start to his feet, and was dimly aware that she had slipped backward into the corner of the sofa, and that he was bending above her in alarm. With an intense effort, she straightened herself and reached out for the paper, which she had dropped. It's the man. I should know him anywhere, she cried in a voice that sounded in her own ears like a scream. Parvis's voice seemed to come to her from far off, down endless fog-muffled windings. Mrs. Boyne, you're not very well. Shall I call somebody? Shall I get a glass of water? No, no, no. She threw herself towards him, her hand frantically clenching the newspaper. I tell you, it's the man. I know him. He spoke to me in the garden. Parvis took the journal from her, directing his glasses to the portrait. It can't be, Mrs. Boyne. It's Robert Elwell. Robert Elwell? Her white stare seemed to travel into space. Then it was Robert Elwell who came for him. Came for Boyne? The day he went away? Parvis's voice dropped as hers rose. He bent over, laying a fraternal hand on her, as if to coax her gently back into her seat. Why, Elwell was dead. 
Don't you remember? Mary sat with her eyes fixed on the picture, unconscious of what he was saying. Don't you remember Boyne's unfinished letter to me, the one you found on his desk that day? It was written just after he'd heard of Elwell's death. She noticed an odd shake in Parvis's unemotional voice. Surely you remember that, he urged her. Yes, she remembered. That was the profoundest horror of it. Elwell had died the day before her husband's disappearance, and this was Elwell's portrait, and it was the portrait of the man who had spoken to her in the garden. She lifted her head and looked slowly about the library. The library could have borne witness that it was also the portrait of the man who had come in that day to call Boyne from his unfinished letter. Through the misty surgings of her brain, she heard the faint boom of half-forgotten words, words spoken by Alita Stair on the lawn at Pangbourne before Boyne and his wife had ever seen the house at Ling, or had imagined that they might one day live there. This was the man who spoke to me, she repeated. She looked again at Parvis. He was trying to conceal his disturbance under what he imagined to be an expression of indulgent commiseration, but the edges of his lips were blue. He thinks me mad, but I am not mad, she reflected, and suddenly there flashed upon her a way of justifying her strange affirmation. She sat quiet, controlling the quiver of her lips, and waiting till she could trust her voice to keep its habitual level. Then she said, looking straight at Parvis, Will you answer me one question, please? When was it that Robert Elwell tried to kill himself? Why, when? Parvis stammered. Yes, the date. Please try to remember. She saw that he was growing still more afraid of her. I have a reason, she insisted gently. Yes, yes, only I can't remember. About two months before, I should say. I want the date, she repeated. Parvis picked up the newspaper. We might see here, he said, still humoring her. He ran his eyes down the page. Here it is, last October... The... She caught the words from him. The twentieth, wasn't it? With a sharp look at her, he verified. Yes, the twentieth. Then you did know. I know now. Her white stare continued to travel past him. Sunday the twentieth. That was the day he came first. Parvis's voice was almost inaudible. Came here first? Yes. You saw him twice, then? Yes, twice. She breathed it at him with dilated eyes. He came first on the 20th of October. I remember the date because it was the day we went up to Meldon Steep for the first time. She felt a faint gasp of inward laughter at the thought that but for that she might have forgotten. Parvis continued to scrutinize her as if trying to intercept her gaze. We saw him from the roof, she went on. He came down the Lime Avenue toward the house. He was dressed just as he is in that picture. My husband saw him first. He was frightened and ran down ahead of me, but there was no one there. He had vanished. Elwell had vanished? Parvis faltered. Yes. Their two whispers seemed to grope for each other. I couldn't think what had happened. I see now. He tried to come, but he wasn't dead enough. He couldn't reach us. He had to wait for two months, and then he came back again, and Ned went with him. 
She nodded at Parvis with the look of triumph of a child who has successfully worked out a difficult puzzle. But sudden she lifted her hands with a desperate gesture, pressing them to her bursting temples. Oh, my God! I sent him to Ned! I told him where to go! I sent him to this room! She screamed out. She felt the walls of the room rush toward her, like inward falling ruins, and she heard Parvis, a long way off, as if through the ruins, crying to her and struggling to get at her. But she was numb to his touch. She did not know what he was saying. Through the tumult she heard but one clear note, the voice of Alita Stair speaking on the lawn at Pangbourne. "'You won't know till afterward,' it said. "'You won't know till long, long afterward.'" Thanks for being with us and for listening to All Things Eerie. For more shivers, stories, and episodes, visit the Nashville Public Library website at library.nashville.org. Feel free to leave requests or suggestions. Original music for this podcast is by Dawn Northwind and was produced and recorded by Adam Dean. Art design is by Allison Price. NPL Studio Engineering is by Forrest Eagle, all of whom, with me, send their very best wishes to you for a very good night. <laughs>